This is episode 24 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Professor Jill Cook about tendons and tendon pain. Thank you for letting us interview you today. My pleasure. Can we start with having you introduce yourself? Well, I'm a professor at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. My area of research is tendon injuries. We've been investigating this area for quite a few years now and really concentrate on the clinical perspectives. That is, we're not interested in the esoteric aspects of tendon pathology and tendon pain. We're really interested in what's going to help a clinician treat a patient better. With tendon pain and injury, you hear a lot of different terminology. Yes. Tendonitis, tendinosis, tendinopathy. Mm -hmm. Can you clarify that terminology and what it should be called? Easy. So the tendonitis, tendinosis uh, terms reflect pathology. So this is about what's happening in the tendon and doesn't really have much standing from a clinical perspective because although we can see pathology on imaging, we actually don't know what it is. So you can't say if it's a tendonitis or a tendinosis. And, you know, really, we've really thought that tendonitis isn't much of an issue. It's really about generation in the tendon, so the tendinosis. But as I say, for a clinician, it doesn't really matter. So the term tendinopathy was devised to reflect the clinical presentation of pain and dysfunction in a tendon, regardless of the pathology. So you can have the imaging changes and you can have the, the loss of power and the loss of strength that these people get. That's a tendinopathy and it doesn't relate directly to the pathology in the tendon. Can you describe the structure of tendons and what makes them so unique? <laughs> That's a small question. <laughs> um, the more we delve into them, the more complex they become. So people think of tendons as relatively simple things that just transmit the force between the muscle and the bone. It's really not like that at all. It's much, much more complex. And the, the most important thing that tendons do in particularly um, our sort of ones that work in when we're athletic, is store and release energy to allow us to propel ourselves or to uh, be athletic with much less metabolic cost than, than it would cost for using our muscles. And, and it's much quicker. So sprinting down a 100-metre track, most of our propulsion forward of our calf comes from the spring behaviour of the Achilles. Now, to do that, a tendon has to have a really complex structure and there's some fantastic new work by Hazel Screen to show that between the tendon fascicles that they slide and rotate which allows the tendon to to really literally act like a spring now and to support that then the structure of the collagen the proteoglycans and the extracellular matrix has to be quite complex and very resilient to massive loads repeatedly so when we talk about tendons, it's often, as I said, thought to be simple. It's just nothing like that. I can't describe it to you fully in under about three hours, I don't think. And then what happens with the tendon when there is an injury? What we know a lot about is we know a lot about normal tendon. We know a lot about degenerative tendon. What happens between those two spaces is really controversial. So there's about 10 different hypotheses from, for how you develop your tendon pathology. Um, we've obviously developed the continuum model, which we think has a, a robust place in the discussion, but there's other people who don't believe that that's actually true. And we're always updating this. We have some new 
thoughts on the early stages of tendon pathology. But what it appears is that there's some sort of overload that is too much for the tendon that somehow affects the normal tendon matrix and you get changes in the matrix that are progressive that eventually lead to a tendon degeneration, which we know pretty much can't recover. It's, it's a pretty much a tissue that will never act like a tendon again. So if the tendons never recover, then how do people see success with physiotherapy treatments and with loading of the tendon? Yeah, because pain and pathology aren't necessarily related. So you can have profound pathology, profound degeneration in your tendon and have no pain. So the, the converse is not absolutely true. It's very hard to have tendon pain when you don't have pathology, but you can have a lot of pathology without tendon pain. So what our physiotherapy interventions, our loading interventions do is change the capacity of the tendon, make it tolerant to loads, regardless of the pathology. Um, and Sean Docking's shown that there's a lot of very good tissue in tendons. So we make it tolerant to the loads. That takes away the pain, but it actually doesn't alter the pathology very much at all. So if there's no alteration in the pathology, then why are tendon injuries still imaged so much? <laughs> you ask some very good questions. Uh, we would advocate they're overimaged, uh, uh, profoundly overimaged. We very rarely clinically image tendons anymore. Really, it's a clinical diagnosis and your imaging really doesn't change very much at all in terms of how you're going to approach that tendon. What we do know is it's not prognostic and it's not a good outcome measure. That is, what your tendon looks like at baseline doesn't give us any information about how it's going to respond to treatment. Neither does serial imaging of tendons actually tell us anything um, about the tendon recovery. So you can actually be fully recovered from your pain, back at your sport, and your tendon can look exactly the same as it did at baseline. So there's a lot to be said about imaging less there's a lot to be said, and this is Sean Docking's work, about being very careful with our terms around tendon pathology. People are often told they have a tear or they have degeneration. People get very frightened of those terms and unnecessarily because the reliability of imaging is relatively poor. And again, this is Sean's work. And we know that you can have the worst looking tendon on imaging and actually still have a very good outcome. So how would you explain that to a patient? We use Sean's, Sean Docking's um, donut in the hole theory, and or not theory, has evidence for it. So what happens when you have a pathology or develop a pathology in your tendon is you get a response in the tendon and you end up somehow, and we don't know how, you end up with as much normal tissue as a normal tendon. So even though you have a pathology, you have a thicker tendon, and most of that thickness in the tendon is comprised of good tendon structure. So we explain to our patients that even though you have an area of pathology, you actually have a lot of fantastic tissue that we can work with. And our job to load you and as physiotherapists and with exercise is to actually get the load tolerance up of the normal part of the tendon. We don't care about the pathology that much. So if the pathologic structure doesn't change that much with treatment. Are the tendons more likely then to rupture? It seems, and this is there's no really good evidence for this, but accumulating the evidence, the person who's most likely to rupture is the person who has pathology and no pain. Now what pain seems to do is cause you to unload 
and that seems to be protective. So there's a fabulous paper by Kavis and Yoza in 1991. They looked at 872, I think, tendon ruptures. 66% of the people who ruptured had no symptoms prior to rupture, but all of them had profound degeneration in their tendon. So you're more likely to rupture if you'd never had a symptom than if you'd had a symptom. So it seems that pain is protective of you loading the tendon and that may reduce your risk of rupture. But we really don't know anything about rupture. There are no prospective studies. They're almost impossible to do from a research perspective. People who rupture, uh, you just don't get any warning most of the time. It just happens. And so you have they have no prodromal sort of symptoms, nothing that suggests that there's going to be an imminent problem. So they often are not in the clinical um, sphere because they're not seeking treatment and they're tendon rupture. So it's very hard research and I don't know that we'll ever find out the answer to that sort of question. So with people with these pathologic tendons who have pain, it's about building up that healthy part of the tendon and that's yes. kind of what's thought to reduce yes the pain the, okay the pain yes. and the the amount of, that they would have for a rupture like the percentage um, i think we know we reduce their pain i don't think we have any okay. perspective on what we do from a perspective mm -hmm. of reducing their risk of rupture okay. what what we always talk about with our patients is uh, they always present with very low function and very low capacity, not mm -hmm. only in their musculotendinous unit that you're treating, but their whole kinetic chain often is profoundly affected. What we do is we want to take them from where they currently are to what they want to achieve in their sport, and that's just a progressive loading program. Along the way, it seems that tendon pain disappears. Um, how and why? We actually don't know, and you know, we actually don't know the source of tendon pain. So we, don't, we know it's not the pathology, but we don't know what it is. So we're really guessing um, from a perspective of our treatment options as to what might be affecting the pain. What we're really doing is saying, well, this has worked for us in the past. Let's keep going with this because this seems to be effective. Do you know about the outcomes between surgery versus non-surgery with tendon ruptures and how that affects people long term? Yep, so the Achilles is obviously the most investigated. There's a lot of surgery in upper limb tendons, but I don't know that literature. Randomised controlled trials have shown that the outcomes between a surgery, surgical and a conservative approach to Achilles tendon ruptures are about the same, but they have different risk profiles. So you're much more likely to get in trouble with a wound infection and complications around the surgery. Um, if you have surgery, funny about that, Conservatively, you are more at risk of re-rupture um, and, and lengthening of the tendon. So it would be very much a question of assessing the person and deciding which way you might go and assessing the risks associated with each method of treatment. And you can usually sort of tailor your selection to the person, but they both work very effectively. They just have risks associated with them that are different. And is surgery ever indicated for tendinopathy? Most of the good surgeons don't do surgery for tendon, uh, tendon pain anymore, tendinopathy, because they don't get them better. And it's really, really interesting. I don't understand why they don't get better, but most surgeons realize that they, they're not effective in managing them from a surgical perspective. Hock and Alfredson now does extra tendinous surgery. So 
the traditional surgeries to go in and take out the degenerative area and allow the tendon to recover. That doesn't tend to have good outcomes. Um, Hawken Alfredson does, and a lot of other people are mimicking his work, he does extra tendon surgery where he strips the, the sort of peritendon structures away from the tendon and probably has this effect by denervating the tendon. Now, he's shown good short-term result, results and relatively good long-term results. If I was going to have surgery for my tendon, that's what I would do. I would do it outside the tendon. Going back to the tendon rupture, in kids, you don't really see a lot of that. They usually will get an avulsion fracture first. Yes. Is that because the tendon is stronger than the bone or because they have healthy tendons? So there's a lot of changes in tendons as you age. The first, the most important thing is tendons don't degenerate because you age. So it's not a question of your tendons becoming pathological as you get older. What happens is you get some changes in your tendon cells and your tendon proteins that make your tendons more vulnerable to overload. And what we talk about here in our group is load appropriate change. So if you're 60, you've put 60 years of load on your Achilles tendon. If you're 10, you've put only put 10 years of load on your tendon. So there's a couple of things that act on the difference in age presentation of things like rupture is kids have much healthier tendons. Their cells are much more active. They're much more communicative. They can respond to load much better. Whereas um, adult cells, tendon cells tend to be a little bit more indolent. They're not quite as um, able to respond as young cells. The tendon is very healthy in young children and they just haven't had an opportunity to put lots of load on them. So we rarely see tendon rupture under 17 or 18 years of age, age but we can see them as young as that in, in relatively highly loaded kids, yes. So if there's tendon changes with age, should older adults not be loading their tendons as much or do they just have to do it in a more gradual way? Uh, I don't think we know. We know that their tendons are not as responsive. So you could argue that if you are going to increase the capacity of an older person's tendon, you would have to take it a little bit slower. But I don't think there's any evidence for that. Um, I guess everything gets a little bit slower as you get older. So, uh, you know, you would have to be careful about loading the muscle, loading the bone, loading all of the structures in an older person. So the tendon's probably no different than, than other tissues. But yes, you would take it a little bit more slowly. You just keep listening to the response of the person to the load you put on it. You, you don't, you don't um, do things differently. You're just more careful about listening to how the body's responded to the load. Is there anything that can be done to prevent these changes in the tendon? Not that we know of. If it's due to overload, then if you were a couch potato your whole life, you possibly would never have a tendon problem. But what we know is if you completely unload, we get pathology in the tendon as well. So tendons need some sort of load. So if you were a fairly low load person, uh, you probably are not going to have tendon pathology. Uh, but the consequences of being low load are much broader. You know, the, the consequences for your general health and your fitness and your you know, risk of other diseases is so profound with low activity. You could never recommend that somebody did that to protect their tendons because they're much more likely to die of some other nasty disease. So um, the answer is yes, we possibly can. We don't have any evidence, but you know, you've got to take a punt. I think you've got to have a go and hope that your tendons come along for the ride. Are there any risk factors for tendon pathology? 
Yes, there's a few. So the crew from South Africa, Malcolm Collins, Alison September's work shows there is a genetic polymorphism associated with tendons. We don't know it's a risk factor. We know it's an associated factor. So that's as yet not helping us for people with tendon pathology and tendon pain because if you have it, you know, we can't do anything about it anyway. Things like diabetes and high cholesterol are highly associated with tendon pathology. Being a man is highly associated with some pathology, so the patella tendon is very much a male disease. But for women, um, gluteal tendon in the hip is very much a female disease, so there's a little bit of gender dimorphic pain profiles in different tendons. They're probably the major ones, major risk factors that I can think of. So how do you engage patients in a rehab program when the evidence suggests that exercise is the best treatment? That's another really good question. I think it's easier for the clinical patients we see. So what we see are people who fail to get better. So they've tried everything, they've seen everybody, nothing's worked. It's very easy for us to say, well, this is what we know works um, and people will buy in. I think it's much harder for the primary sort of contact practitioner who's seeing someone relatively early in a presentation when you know you can go to the internet and find a hundred solutions that are much easier sort of injectables and magic treatments and all sorts of things i think the key thing and what we do even in our population is education this is why your tendon is is in trouble this is what you need to get out of it this is the time you need to spend these are why all these simple interventions that you've suggested are not going to work. You can spend a lot of money on interventions that are promised to work in tendons that pretty much don't stack up at all. Um, so I think that people being informed is just so critical and informed, I guess, from an expert perspective. You know, as, a, as physiotherapists, you know, we have an expertise. We should be really using that to convince people of the need for a sort of a loading-based intervention. You talked a bit about injectables. What are your thoughts on that? Do they change the tendon structure at all? The group of patients we see usually have had multiple injections and have had no success. I don't fully understand, and when I read the literature, when you look at what's happening in a tendon pathology, how any of these injectable therapies could possibly have an effect. And that's the key thing for me. If I could understand the reasoning for injecting substance X, because substance X is going to make your tendon pathology much better, I, I, you know, I, would, I would have to support them. But the answer is the underlying scientific premise of how they should work is just lacking. You know, there's, there's no way most of these substances could possibly affect tendon pathology. That's the first thing. The second thing is we don't know the source of pain. We know it's not the pathology. So you don't have to affect the pathology to affect the pain, but we can't affect the pain because we don't know how to, because we don't know the source of it. So again, I can't see that any of these um, magic therapies will, can possibly promise what they do, and they very often let us down. They give us very little in terms of outcome. The reason some of them work in the short term is because they're often associated with rest. So you have an injection, you must rest for three weeks or six weeks. Well, resting a tendon helps it. So separating the effect of the injection from the effect of the rest is often very difficult. And proper placebo-controlled trials in a lot of these therapies have shown they don't work any better than placebo.
How about shockwave therapy? Mm-hmm. Interesting question. I've just been to a conference on shockwave therapy. Um, again, I think from a pathology perspective, you couldn't suggest that it has an effect. But we know that the nerves um, of the tendon that will transmit whatever the nociceptive driver in tendon is has to get from the tendon to the brain. So it has to come through sort of peripheral nerves. So the nerves to the tendon are peripheral and things like shockwave therapy can induce some sort of short-term neuropraxia in a nerve. And so it's quite possible that they reduce pain from affecting the nerves. I think we have to be very careful in suggesting that they might change the pathology in any positive way because I cannot see how they can do that. And in terms of treatment, what about the role of manual therapy? Yes, I think we have to be careful when we do research not to take away every tool from a physiotherapist's toolbox. And we're very careful to say that any manual therapy techniques that you use that help a person load better and with less pain have to have some benefit. And of course, patients want to have some sort of touch therapy, I guess that you could say. They need to feel that they've had some sort of hands-on treatment from a physio. So from both those perspectives, I think it's a very positive thing. I think we have to be very careful Physios get it round the wrong way. I think you have to spend the bulk of your uh, treatment on sorting out their loading and their exercise, and then the end of the treatment should be a little bit of manual therapy. What happens is people come in and they get 25 minutes of manual therapy and then five minutes on the exercise program where they're they're throwing two or three exercises, there's been no thought to it. They're rubbish exercises, they're not gonna help. That's where I think we're wrong. I think if we reverse that and really concentrated on the thing we know that works, which is the loading and the exercise therapy, and then used our adjuncts as needed at the end, I think we would have a really nice balance. Is there anything clinically that should not be done when treating people with a tendon issue? Yeah, there's a lot of things that should be done. Probably the primary thing is rest. Okay, so what happens is people say, oh, well, your tendons, or you better rest it because we know that rest makes the pain feel better. But what we know from a pathology perspective and from a capacity perspective is that just reduces your ability to take load. And if it's really profound rest, it can actually make your tendon pathology worse. So I think rest would have to be the bane of my life. Things, statements like, oh, well, you shouldn't do weights because you've got a tendon pathology. The answer is weights are the absolute answer for tendons. So I think that's the, the most important thing. The second thing is if a tendon is irritable and if it's painful and coming to physiotherapy because of pain and because we don't know what the nociceptive driver, I would counsel against a lot of hands-on friction-based, um, you know, heavy frictions. I, I, I know there's a name for them. I don't know what it is. Um, because I think that has the potential to make it worse in the long term. Sometimes they'll feel better in the short term, but it potentially could actually increase the nociceptive driver. If we have, if you're based on the continuum theory and we have angry cells that are producing substances that create pain, irritating those cells further may be worse for the tendon. So I, I would counsel against those heavy um, friction type procedures. 
and obviously against injectables and things like that. But from a physio perspective, they would be the two big things that I think might make a tendon worse. So how do you balance loading the tendon versus the pain that someone might be experiencing when they load it? Okay, so it's a, it's a good question again. So tendons are only loaded with fast activity. So maximum tendon load is a fast eccentric load. That's the energy storage part of the spring behavior that they do. So any low speed activity is not going to be provocative for a tendon. So someone can do slow heavy weights and actually not provoke their tendon at all. And in fact, it's a very good differential diagnosis sign. We see a lot of tendons or a lot of people who've been diagnosed with tendon pain that don't have tendon pain, they have pain from another source. They've tried to do heavier weights and their pain has been worse. That's a sure sign it's not tendon pain that's giving you, it's not the main driver of your pain. So you can do a lot of heavy, slow loading and actually not provoke anybody's pain at all. And I think that's a really important differential. Um, the other way you can guide yourself is tendons talk to you 24 hours later. So what happens is if I put a load on a tendon today, it will tell me tomorrow if it's been happy with the load. So we educate our patients about that relationship and they very quickly learn what activities are provocative for their tendon. They very quickly learn to reduce those. So there's a couple of um, easy ways to balance that that um, balance load and, and the pain that people feel. So with treatment, a lot of people come in because of pain and once they're out of pain they stop during their rehab program so is pain reduction a good indicator of recovery when someone stops having pain does that mean they're better if somebody stops having pain when they've loaded the tendon to the maximum they want that's an indication of full recovery so if you, for example, if you had an Achilles and I treated you and you had originally had walk pain and now you can walk pain free, that's fantastic because you can get around very easily and with no pain. But if you want to be a runner, you can still have pain when you run. So for me, it's about loading the tendon to the level that that person wants and not getting a flare 24 hours later is a sign that they've maximally recovered. Um, what you see with people is you're right, they get halfway through a program and think that they're recovered, go back to too much activity, their pain comes back. It doesn't take very many times for that for them to realise, in fact, they actually have to put the time in to get it fully recovered. Um, and if they do that, they can be pain-free or virtually pain-free in their activity, which is what they came to you in the first place for. What is the importance of the kinetic chain when dealing with rehab for it. Essential, could not be more important. So what we see in tendons is you get wasting or a loss of strength and power in the affected muscle tendon unit and everything below it. So if you have an Achilles problem, you, you're a calf and an Achilles tendon is affected. If you have a patellar tendon problem, your quads and your patellar tendon are affected, but your calf's profoundly affected as well. If you have a gluteal problem, you get loss in your quadriceps and your calf as well. So the kinetic chain couldn't be more important. If you land from a jump, 60% of your landing energy is absorbed by your calf and ankle complex. So if you have a patellar tendon that's taking load when you land, if your calf function's not up to absolute peak form, 
then much more load comes to your patella tendon. So we spend a lot of time rehabilitating the kinetic chain and even the other leg. So very occasionally we see people present with a tendon in a limb that doesn't look too bad, the other legs had some sort of injury. That's profoundly unloaded. They're getting around by loading their other leg. That's the leg that fails. So you've really got to be very holistic in how you assess these people and you've got to be incredibly broad in your rehabilitation. You can't just focus on the affected muscle tendon unit. You, that person will get a little bit better, but they won't get um, back to their sport um, pain-free. A lot of the research for tendon injury and pathology seems to be for the lower limb. Does all of that hold true for the upper limb as well? There's a ton of research on the shoulder, the rotator cuff, that's a tendon. It's different in the upper limb. So there's some suggestions that your pain profile is a little bit different in the upper limb. The rotator cuff seems to be quite different in the upper limb as well. But some tendons do hold true. Certainly the principles of overload seem to hold true. So if you overload an upper limb tendon, you get in trouble. The medial and lateral elbow uh, act completely like lower limb tendons in terms of their energy storage abilities and the fact that they get loaded in these high load sort of activities. You could argue that the biceps, long-headed biceps works similarly. You could argue that perhaps the anterior and posterior rotator cuff act similarly because they have really massive loads in sporting activities such as pitching and racket sports and stuff like that. But it's sort of not my area. So I think you could argue that there's a lot of similarities, but I wouldn't be the person to comment further than that. Now, with tendon pain and injury, a lot of it comes from overload. So if a tendon is overloaded, then how can loading it change pain? Mm -hmm. So the first thing you do when someone presents is you find out what load's creating the problem. So you do an extensive history, very careful questioning about when their symptoms came, came on, what's changed. And it can be very subtle, it can be very obvious. It might be a change in shoes or it might be someone who's just taken up marathon running. And then you look to decrease the load that's creating the problem. So we look to pull down the loads that have caused the problem in the first place allow the pain to settle and then use load to recover the tendon so that the next time the person does that then their tendon is much better. So to, to put it in a perspective if somebody's normally runs five kilometers and they decide they want to run a lot more and they start to run you know 10 or 15 kilometers each time and they get Achilles tendon pain what you do is you pull them back to five kilometers you give them a strength program, you you know, a full, full assessment and a full strength program, and you gradually build them up. So instead of going from 5 to 15 kilometres, which creates the problem, you go from 5 to 5.1 kilometres to 5.2 kilometres, and you allow the tendon to increase its capacity very slowly, and it works. I think the biggest question that patients have when they come in for any type of rehab is how long is this going to take? Mm -hmm. So with tendon injuries, is there a prognosis on how long it's going to take to recover? No. <laughs> so it really depends on how they present and what they want to do. So if they have had pain for two or three years and they want to run a marathon, then it's going to take us a long time because where they are, which is profoundly dysfunctional and painful and all of the things that go with long-term pain, 
and a marathon is a really big distance. So we're going to be talking months there. The corollary of that is if they come in and they've been profoundly unloaded for a period of time, but they just want to walk the golf course, that means that we what we need to develop or the capacity we need to develop is not as great. So we can actually do that much quicker. The other time where it's quicker is somebody wants to run a marathon, but they've only had pain for two weeks. So they haven't lost a lot of function and uh, it's much quicker to get them unloaded, get them right and build them back up. So it really depends on what capacity they have at the moment and what they want to do. And the distance between those two sort of dictates how long it's going to take for them to get back. For people who have had that tendon pain for two, three years, is it common for them to develop central subsidization? Another very good question. There's evidence in the upper limb that that's possible. There's evidence in the lower limb that that doesn't happen. And we don't really know why. So what we see commonly in lower limb tendons is doesn't really matter how long you've had your pain, it still only hurts to load it and it still only hurts on one spot in the tendon. So we don't get a distribution of pain. We don't get pain with less activity. It stays load-related and it stays localised. So that would suggest that we don't see central sensitization in tendons in the lower limb. Um, there's a lot of argument about that, but I would, I would suggest that uh, it's not a major factor in lower limb tendons, even despite the length of time people have pain. What has been the evolution of tendon rehab and where do you see it going in the future? Well, I'm old enough to remember when we treated it as an inflammatory condition. So we rested and iced and anti used anti-inflammatories on, on these patients and we went nowhere. And it was really the Kerwin and Stanish eccentric exercise that was then taken up by Hawke and Alfredson that suggested that loading might be beneficial. And I think over the last 20 years, what we've done is really honed our understanding of load and the effect of load on tendons. And it's now clear that that's by far our best intervention and making sure our loading environment is right. I really don't know if we can, I can't see a way where we're going to get much quicker or better at managing tendons, except to say it'd be fabulous to identify people before they really got into trouble, but we can't do that because people can have profound pathology and not get pain. The new loading stuff where, you know, acute versus chronic load, all that sort of stuff is probably our strongest tool. What we know with tendons is they hate change. If you're placing the same load on a tendon on a regular basis, the tendon's usually very happy. So I guess um, having strategies in place in, in active people about consistent load over a long period of time is by far our best tool in making sure people don't get into trouble. The, the concept of having a big rest and then coming back to activity, having a big rest coming back to activity is the worst thing you can do for tenants. So consistent load would help. I don't know if much else is going to sort of push us along. Understanding where the pain come from, came from might help us, but I can't see that happening in the near future either. You said the old model was based on inflammation. Is there any inflammation with tendon injury? Yep, there's a whole group, several groups actually in the UK that are um, investigating inflammation as a driver of tendon pathology and pain. 
I think it exists. There's no doubt we have inflammatory cells. It's injured tissue. You will have inflammatory cells because it's a response of the body to an injury. There will be inflammatory mediators. And again, that's a pretty normal thing in, in injured tissue. The thing for me is I don't think inflammation either drives the pathology or drives the pain. So I think it's a it's something that sits on the side, but I don't think it's the thing that we can intervene with and have a, a profound effect, a profound beneficial effect on tendons. So I, I would be happy to say, yes, there's inflammation there. It's fairly low grade. It's not affecting our outcomes. Um, it's not affecting our um, prognosis. It, it just exists. But there will be people who will really vehemently disagree with me. And is that why rest doesn't really help? A lot of reasons rest doesn't help. If you rest a, rest a tendon, the capacity of the tendon drops. So mechanical strength in a tendon drops in about two to three weeks of rest. Um, your muscle strength develops, your kinetic chain goes west, everything changes. Everything that's important to getting that tendon to act efficiently and without excess load disappears when you rest. So whether it helps from an inflammatory perspective, it's always been the idea of you have inflammation, you rest and the inflammation goes away. Uh, that's, that's great, but for tendons, it doesn't help us. Even if the inflammation is there, it doesn't help us to rest a tendon. It just makes things worse. And with loading, how comfortable are you pushing people into pain? Oh, very comfortable. As long as they're not worse the next day. That relationship between how much they do today and how painful they are tomorrow is the critical one. So if you do a lot of load today and it does give you some pain and you'll know worse tomorrow, I'm still happy. However, I think the key thing is that we talk about um, tendons hating change. It's really important when you are, if you are considering letting someone have some pain when they load, that you know that the load is within that person's capacity. You can't take someone from running five kilometers to 15 kilometers and say, well, I don't care if you have pain because you would care because there's such a profound change in load. So as long as there's not a big change in load and they're not worse the next day, pain during exercise is usually not something we worry about. And how often do you suggest that people load their tendons? We're always interested in when they're rehabilitating a daily, some sort of daily load, but it would be different. So we would do our faster energy storage and release loads, our spring type loads two to three times a week, and our strength work two to three times a week. So we would alternate between a gym-based program and a running, jumping, whatever it is you need type program. Um, and both aspects are really, really important. Um, always, happier if a tendon's loaded every day as long as it's within the capacity of a tendon. Now you said earlier that heavy, slow strength training doesn't put a ton of load in, on the tendon. Mm. So why is that so important in the rehab process? That's a good question too. We know that that has a profound effect on the muscle. We know that it changes the mechanical strength of the tendon so it will have an effect on the tendon but it won't be provocative for the tendon but what we know is if you're going to use your tendon as a spring you do that off a relatively isometric contraction so you really need good muscle control so that your spring loads on your tendon are very controlled as well 
So what happens is if you have a really weak muscle, you can get fatigued very easily. You start to not have the muscle contraction you need. The loads on your tendon spring become quite aberrant. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a two way thing. First, we know it changes your mechanical strength in your tendon, but second, it helps your muscle control the loads on your tendon. Um, and of course, doing the kinetic chain makes a difference because you're actually sharing the load between joints and between muscles and tendons. And what questions are you hoping to have answered with future research? <laughs> I'd really like to solve most of the problems of tendon <laughs> rehab. I, I think we would like to get tendons out of one bucket so we know that the upper limbs are different tendons are different from the lower limb tendon what we're finding now is the patellar tendon is actually quite unique and different from the achilles and the gluteal tendons are very different from both of those so i think this one size fits all um, for lower limb tendons is not that helpful and we are very slowly teasing out the differences and um, helping understand our approach to each of those tendons needs to be different so I think that's that's very important. I'd really like to know whether um, there would be anything we could do to accelerate the load response of the tendon and the muscle, but everyone's tried to do that. I don't think there's anything that we can do there. Clearly, if we could change tendon pain, and the isometrics are fabulous, and Ebony Rio's work, I'm sure you're talking to her, so you'll be able to talk to her about her isometrics. That's um, understanding how they work would be fabulous. We know they have a local effect. We know they have a cortical effect, but understanding those would be really important. And, and certainly, again, from her work, understanding how the brain, motor cortex part of the brain, certainly the motor drive part of the brain affects tendons would be really good as well. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, nowhere, really. <laughs> I tend to have a fairly low profile. I work at La Trobe Uni. People can always email me if they want. Okay, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode. This is episode 24 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with Professor Jill Cook about tendons and tendon pain.